You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 Plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Beyond Zero is Toyota's vision of a carbon-neutral future and more. Toyota gives you the power to reduce carbon emissions and help move toward its vision with a wide selection of electrified vehicles. Whether you're into hybrid EVs for that traditional Toyota feel with better MPG, battery EVs for a smooth and silent ride, or plug-in hybrid EVs that switch between battery and fuel, Toyota has you covered. And for those who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions and move closer to Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrified-vehicles slash beyond-zero-vision. Toyota, let's go places. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So I know we're both big fans of Shel Silverstein, but do you remember this poem? It was called Prayer of the Selfish Child. You know, that name sounds so familiar, but I don't actually remember the exact words. How, how'd it go? All right, so this is one of my favorites, but it goes, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break so none of the other kids can (laughs) use them. Amen. (laughs) I love it. So I've spent countless hours over the years reading Silverstein with both of my kids, and I'll never forget, probably, I don't know, maybe like seven or eight years ago, reading this poem with my daughter. And just seeing her get this little smirk on her face when I read it to her, and it was as though she was thinking, okay, I know that's wrong, but I also get it, and it's pretty darn funny. Yeah, I I think most kids could identify with that feeling in some way. Like, there's something about Shel Silverstein's writing that allows us to be a little dark or maybe a little naughty, but also really silly at the same time. That's exactly it. So, you know what? We, we, we thought it was time to dedicate an episode to one of our favorite children's authors to talk about his fascinating and successful career well before he was ever pushed into writing for kids, to hear what he thought kids wanted to hear, and also how he felt about happy endings. So let's dive in. Hey, 
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. Of course, Mango is joining me today from the always-friendly Mouth Media Studios in New York City. And Mango, you're missing this, but on the other side of the soundproof glass, building a sailboat with the wood from his childhood apple tree. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm kind of getting choked up as I say this. That's our friend and producer, Tristan uh-huh. McNeil. And, you know, I'm not sure what far off place he plans on going with that, but it must be a pretty important trip because I know how much Tristan loved his old family apple. Excuse me, I'm just, I'm just getting choked up again. So... I'm wondering about this because I, I asked him a little earlier and it sounds like he just plans to tool around the coast on the weekends, you know, like assuming he ever gets this boat finished. Oh, well, that 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 kind of took a, a dark turn from what, what I thought <laughs> it might be. But you know what? That, that actually might be appropriate for today's episode because Shel Silverstein was certainly not your average saccharine sweet children's author. Now, most people know him for his tongue-twisting rhymes he penned for childhood classics like Where the Sidewalk Ends and A Light in the Attic. But there were also long and varied parts of his career where most people, they don't really know what he was up to, including some fairly unsavory stints as a playwright and a raunchy songwriter and even a cartoonist for Playboy of all places. So -hmm. with these different sides of the artist in mind, I thought we should check out some of the lesser known stories from Silverstein's life and, you know, try to get a sense of how he became one of the most beloved and even most controversial writers of the 20th century. Yeah, so once he became famous as a children's author, details of his earlier life and his other work kind of faded from public consciousness. And another big reason why those stories aren't so well known is that Shel Silverstein was also a pretty private guy. Like, he rarely gave interviews, he uh, never wrote a memoir or sat down with a biographer or anything like that. And as a result, we really don't know much about Shel's childhood which is kind of ironic given what he's known for. I I mean, we know the basics, right? Like we know he was born in 1930 to a middle-class Jewish family in Chicago, but things actually get kind of hazy beyond that. Well, there's at least one other thing we know for sure about the young Shel Silverstein, and that is that he was positively obsessed with the Chicago White Sox. In fact, in a rare 1975 interview with Publishers Weekly, Silverstein said, When I was a kid, 12 to 14, around there, I would much rather have been a good baseball player or a hit with the girls. But I Mm. couldn't play ball. I couldn't dance. Luckily, the girls didn't want me. Not much I could do about that, so I started to draw and write. (laughs) Well, I mean, you've got to appreciate his honesty, right? Like, not very many authors would admit that a career in writing was their plan C. (laughs) I mean, obviously, after playing baseball and being a professional Casanova, I guess. (laughs) Well, while Silverstein was a little too unathletic to turn pro at either of those things, he did have one early gig in professional sports, or at least in the same ballpark. And that's because he actually spent five years selling beer and hot dogs at the Chicago Cubs and Chicago White Sox stadiums. And not only did that gig help pay his way through school, it actually also gave him some valuable life lessons. So just as one example of this, when a reporter asked him what he learned about people from his time as a hot dog vendor, Silverstein replied, I learned they like mustard and that they like a hot bun. Did you know that? (laughs) If you steam the bun first, they'll really like it. I mean, that's the sort of wisdom you can't buy. But uh, speaking of Shell's schooling, he actually had a pretty tough go of things. So first he attended the University of Illinois, but was quickly kicked out due to his bad grades. And then he tried the Art Institute of Chicago, 
where he wound up dropping out after about a year. And lastly, he went to Roosevelt University, which is also in Chicago. I I guess he studied English for a full three years there. And this last attempt at college life at Roosevelt was probably the most crucial for Shell because it was actually where he first started writing and cartooning for the school paper. And of course, his flair for flaunting authority and, you know, all those established norms was even there in his earliest work. So we found the first cartoon he ever published, and it shows this uh, naked student smoking a cigarette in front of this angry professor. And the caption just reads, uh, what do you mean no smoking? I thought this was a liberal school. (laughs) (laughs) I do kind of like that there's that hint of his absurdist slant, you know, right there from the very beginning. But Uh I'm I'm curious, though, it sounds like Silverstein finally found a decent fit or, or a home there at Roosevelt. So did he eventually get his degree there? No, he never did, actually. Uh, It wasn't his fault this time. Like, before Shell had the chance to finish, he was drafted into the Korean War. This was in, uh, I think, in 1953. And, of course, Shell being Shell, you know, there's no guarantee he would have finished college anyway. He implied at one point that he probably wouldn't have. But his time in the Army actually proved just as formative. It gave him the chance to earn his first art-based paycheck. And this is while working as a cartoonist for the Stars and Stripes military newspaper. Actually, you know what? I I remember reading about this. What Wasn't he like court-martialed or something for his work on that paper? Yeah, almost. So uh, apparently one of the cartoons he did for the paper implied that officers were clothing their families with a bunch of like stolen uniforms. Mm. And of course, the higher-ups didn't find it very funny. And in the end, Shell actually just narrowly avoided the court-martial. He did this by agreeing that the future strips would only lampoon civilians and animals and not as fellow soldiers. And and that makes sense because, you know, if you think about it, if anybody needs to be taken down a peg, it's animals. I I don't know how you feel about this. (laughs) I do feel the same way. (laughs) Right. So, all right. So so now we're getting to the point where Silverstein's career really begins to take shape. So he was discharged in 1955. He goes back to Chicago and he starts working as a freelance cartoonist. And, And it actually goes pretty well for a while. So he lands a few gigs at places like Sports Illustrated and Look Magazine But from this, he doesn't really get a whole lot of acclaim for these jobs and, you know, none of it's steady work. But then in 1957, Silverstein catches his big break and he becomes the resident cartoonist for Playboy. Now, Mm -hmm. the magazine had premiered just a couple years before, so, you know, Silverstein was really able to get in on the ground floor. But it actually wasn't some sort of short-lived stint on his way to, you know, like later fame as a children's author. In fact, Silverstein's cartoons appeared in every single issue of Playboy from 1957 all the way through the mid-70s. So we're talking almost a couple of decades. That's crazy. So I I knew he worked at Playboy, and I just assumed, you know, like, he's from Chicago, Playboy got to start in Chicago, so so that makes sense. But I had no idea that his adults-only phase in his career actually overlapped with his children's phase. Mm -hmm. I I mean, The Giving Tree was published in the 60s, so it's wild to think he was still a Playboy employee during this time. Yeah, and actually there's even more overlap than that, because in 1961, the adult magazine published its first ever children's work, and I say that in quotations, which was called Uncle Shelby's ABZ Book, and soon after it (laughs) appeared in Playboy, Silverstein actually published this separately as his first book. So something tells me this wasn't really a kid's book, right? No, it definitely wasn't. I mean, the tagline (laughs) claimed it was, quote, a primer for young minds, but you wouldn't get too far into it before realizing it was anything but that. So the idea is that, you know, it was one of these children's learn the alphabet books where every page gives you a letter and then an Uh illustration and like this little mnemonic device to help kids learn the letters and how they're used. But 
that really wasn't the goal in Uncle Shelby's case. And instead, the book used associations that targeted the insecurities and gullibility of children and kind of tried to spur them into all kinds of mischief. So just, just to give a couple examples of this, you know, one entry encouraged kids to hurl eggs at the ceiling in order to feed the magic genie Ernie, who lives there, I guess. <laughs> and another one advised kids to pretend to drink lye if they were ever craving candy because, you know, after the doctor pumps their stomach, he'll give you a nice red lollipop. Uh. But anyway, but well, one of my favorites is probably the entry for the letter B, and it includes the lines, See the baby play. Play, baby, play. Pretty, pretty baby. Mommy loves the baby more than she loves you. (laughs) I mean, it's obviously horrible. And, you know, this is clearly satire. And and the book wasn't meant for kids in the slightest. But you just have to know that some clueless parent bought this book for their kids at some point, right? Oh, absolutely. And, And in fact, those misunderstandings happen often enough that from 1985 onward, the print edition of the book actually includes a stamp right on the front cover. And what it says is, a primer for adults only. <laughs> I love that. Like, instead of taking it out of circulation, they just put a stamp on it. To That's fix all the it problem. takes. Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is that, you know, what a tongue in cheek book like this says about Shell's view of children's literature. I, I mean, it's no secret that he hated the way most children's authors condescended to their audience. Like, he sometimes spoke about the way that the scarier elements in classic fairy tales are toned down to make the stories, I guess, like, fluffier and more kid-friendly. And he actually saw this as a form of censorship, which is a viewpoint that seems to have informed this uh, ABZ book. Well, if you think about it, I mean, what better way to push against the status quo of children's books than to just write your own and do what you want with it? But, um, (laughs) you know, according to Silverstein, it was actually a friend and fellow illustrator named Tommy Unger, who helped him do just that. And by helped, I really mean forced, because as Silverstein later said that his friend, quote, practically dragged me kicking and screaming into editor Ursula Nordstrom's office. And Nordstrom convinced me that Tommy was right. I could do children's books. And so for his first book, Silverstein made kind of a bold move and stuck to the Uncle Shelby persona he had created for Playboy. I mean, it's just so strange that this <laughs> is what he did. But he called it Uncle Shelby's story of Lafcadio, the lion who shot back. And it was an appropriately twisted tale about this marshmallow-loving lion who becomes a famous marksman and has kind of an identity crisis as a result of all this. So, you know, you know the kind of the, the standard children's stuff about life crises and things like that. Sure. So, Lafcadio is one of Shell's lesser-known works, but it, it doesn't predate The Giving Tree by all that much, right? Like, I, I'm pretty sure it came out just like a year later or something. Well, you're you're half right about that. So, Silverstein did write The Giving Tree a year after his first book, uh, along with a third title that's called A Giraffe and a Half. Uh, but, you know, while, while the story of this generous apple tree would eventually become his most popular book, at the time it was written, actually, no publisher would touch it. It was a full year until somebody finally came around, and this was HarperCollins. I mean, if you're familiar with the book, you can kind of see why this was. You know, it's not a very happy story, and in fact, it's downright sad in some places. And if you're looking for a moral to the story, it's pretty ambiguous at best, I would say. No, that's true. And and when you think about it, that's totally in line with Shell's MO, right? Like as this new kind of children's author, like he never wanted to talk down to child readers or sugarcoat the world for them. And instead, he was kind of trying to bridge the gap between adult and children's writing. Well, that's a good point. And, you know, from the publisher's perspective, though, the story was sort of stranded somewhere in the middle of that bridge. You know, for example, it was kind of interesting just to see how different editors reacted to it. So, There was one from Simon & Schuster who rejected the book, and he said, 
It's not a kid's book. It's too sad. And it isn't for adults either. It's too simple. And, you know, this uh, other editor that just kind of went straight to the chase here in his response, and he said, that tree is sick, neurotic. (laughs) Well, I mean, plenty of people would probably agree with that take, but we'll save the controversy for later. For now, I I do think it's worth mentioning that Shell definitely got the last laugh. You know, uh, if you fast forward to today, The Giving Tree has actually become one of the all-time children's classics. And not only has it sold nearly 10 million copies, it's also been translated into no fewer than 30 different languages. 30 different languages. I mean, if you think mm-hmm. about it, not too shabby for this sick, neurotic apple tree, really. <laughs> not at all. And I, I do want to spend some time on the psychology behind Shell's writing and how that relates to the controversy we touched on. But I also think we'd be doing our listeners a real disservice if we didn't talk at least a little bit about Silverstein's bizarre stint as a songwriter. All right. Well, I'm with you on that. So uh, let's do that. But before we get to it, let's take a quick break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the strange life and times of Shel Silverstein. 
And if you ask me, one of the strangest times in his life by far was this period between 1959 and the mid-1970s when he actually enjoyed a pretty successful music career. I mean, particularly as a songwriter. And I don't, I don't think most people know this. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I, I mean, it makes sense that his knack for poetry would translate to songwriting, but it's still amazing just how well he pulled off that transition. Yeah. I mean, as a singer, he didn't have much success. His voice was, I guess, too raspy and jarring for most people's ears, even though he actually does have a dozen albums. But when he committed to songwriting, things really took off for him. And by the end of his life, he'd written more than 800 songs. You know, many of these were recorded and performed by some pretty famous artists like Waylon Jennings, uh, Willie Nelson, Jerry Lee Lewis, even Johnny Cash. That's a pretty incredible lineup. And actually, he even won a Grammy for the song he wrote for Johnny Cash, which was A Boy Named Sue. You, you, you've heard this song, right, Mango? <laughs> yeah, of course. But I didn't know Shel Silverstein wrote it until recently. Like, it makes perfect sense in hindsight, right? Like, it's such a deeply silly song, and it still has a sense of danger to it. So it really fits right into Shell's repertoire. Yeah, it's true. And for anybody who might not have heard it before, the song is about a boy who was named Sue by his absentee father, and he gets picked on all his life for having a girl's name. So much so that one day Sue tracks down his dad and threatens to kill him. And at that point, that's when the dad reveals that he only named his son Sue because he wanted to make him tough. I guess by forcing him to stand up for himself, you know, whenever somebody made fun of him. Anyway, Sue gets on board with this explanation, and all is forgiven between he and his dad. You know, but the thing that most people don't know is that Silverstein actually wrote a sequel to the song as well. It was called Father of a Boy Named Sue, but you will not find this song on a Johnny Cash album. I mean, the darkness of this song it actually kind of eclipses the silliness in the other one. So Silverstein wound up singing it himself, which which probably explains why so few people actually know about it. <laughs> so I, I'm actually a little afraid to ask, but you can't just leave us hanging like that. So what makes it so much darker? Well, first of all, the sequel is told from the dad's point of view, and it's basically him setting the record straight on what happened in the first song. So, for example, he reveals that he actually named his son Sue not to toughen him up, but his revenge for all those times the boy screamed and cried and pitched all these fits <laughs> as a baby, which, you know, of course, seems perfectly fair, right? Yeah, it feels like a totally appropriate response to, like, a baby acting like a baby. <laughs> right, right. Well, it gets decidedly inappropriate from there, so I'm not going to go into details. You can track down the song for yourself if you dare to do so, but let's just say the character's relationship goes from unhealthy to something much, much worse. Oh, no. So, I mean, you can kind of see why Johnny Cash might have taken a pass on that, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, it really is sort of a weird thing to think about, something that dark coming from the mind of a celebrated children's author. But honestly, I mean, that kind of black humor pops up a lot in the poems he wrote for kids. I was just looking at some examples of this, and, you know, one of the best is probably the poem called Dreadful. And this comes from Where the Sidewalk Ends, and it's pretty short, so I'll just read it real quick here. It goes, Someone ate the baby. What a frightful thing to eat. Someone ate the baby, though she wasn't very sweet. It was a heartless thing to do. The policemen haven't got a clue. I simply can't imagine who would go and burp, eat the baby. <laughs> I mean, I do understand why some parents might not approve of that one. You know, most of us tend to frown on baby eating after yeah, I all. Think but so. On the other hand, like the poem is clever, it's funny, it seems pretty harmless all in all, and you know, I, I know people have accused Silverstein's poetry of being a bad influence, but 
Like, does anyone really think their kid's going to go cannibal after hearing that phone? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I know what you mean, but it did get me wondering, like, what it is about Silverstein's poetry that kids find so inherently appealing. You know, despite how dark it can get sometimes, and what I found is that it partly comes down to how kids respond to poetry in general. All kinds of psychological studies have shown that connection between music and an infant's development of of their language. And according to this article from Frontiers in Psychology, quote, the further removed a feature of language is from music, the later it is learned. So the idea Hmm. that kids respond so well to poetry because it's the most musical of the language-based arts, it just kind of makes sense. That's really fascinating because, you know, if it's the musicality they're responding to, then a lot of the appeal is probably in the sounds that our voices make rather than the words themselves. And I guess that makes sense given how, like, children's poetry usually plays up these acoustical aspects like rhythm or rhyme. Certainly more than most adult poetry does, I guess. Yeah, and I think most children's poets have to know that their work will be read aloud. So it it makes sense that they would try to craft these highly musical verses since, you know, those are the most fun both both to hear and to to listen to. Yeah, and obviously Shel Silverstein did just that. But, you know, I don't think it's just the musicality of his writing that's endeared him to so many generations of young readers. Like silliness and cleverness, obviously that has a lot to do with it, but... If you ask me, the the thing that really wins kids over are those hints of menace and sadness that underline so much of his work. Like, Where the Sidewalk Ends is such a melancholy poem, and even as a concept, it sounds sort of foreboding. Yeah, and is that what you think kids like about it? I mean, I, I know kids get a kick out of scaring themselves just like adults do. You know, I mean, of course, as long as it's the right amount of scare and they don't feel mm-hmm. like they're in danger or anything, but... But why would something sad or upsetting be that appealing to them? I mean, it's what you're saying about the right amount, right? Like, I, I think kids will kind of appreciate and react to the honesty of something like that. Like, maybe even if it's just on a subconscious level, they, they recognize that even though the author is writing for them, he isn't really treating them like kids. And actually, to go along with that, there, there's this great quote I want to read from The Daily Beast And it's this article I found. It's about why the less than sunny worlds of some children's books resonate so deeply with kids. So it says, uh, small and effectively powerless against the whims of adults, contested bedtimes notwithstanding, children are buffeted by the currents of a large world they often do not understand. A book without fear is an unbelievable book, sounding a dull note that soon fades. Yeah. I mean, that does make a lot of sense. And and you think about other authors like Maurice Sendak or Roald Dahl, even Dr. Seuss. I mean, they were all kind of keyed into that idea, you know, that not having to pretend the world is this completely safe and happy all the time place when when they were writing for kids. And actually, even that Tommy Unger that we talked about earlier, the one who helped convince Silverstein to try his hand at kids writing, he was famous in France for his own unsettling children's fiction. You know, I'm actually glad you brought him up again because Unger was also a big inspiration behind Maurice Sendak's work, and he doesn't get nearly as much credit as he should. Also, speaking of Sendak, did, did you know that he and Silverstein shared the same longtime editor? Oh, wow. That Yeah, that the woman Ursula Nordstrom you mentioned, she worked with both of them for decades, which makes sense because, you know, apparently her self-stated mission was to publish, quote, good books for bad children. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Well, you know, given that now seems like a good time to talk about the controversy Silverstein's writing has kicked up over the years, as as well as his legacy in general. 
That sounds great. But but first, I, I do want to read another quick poem from Sidewalk because it really goes a long way towards explaining how Silverstein approached writing for children. It's called The Land of Happy, and it goes, quote, Have you been to the land of happy where everyone's happy all day, where they joke and they sing of the happiest things and everyone's jolly and gay? There's no one unhappy and happy. There's laughter and smiles galore. I have been to the land of happy. What a bore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't argue with that. All right. Well, we do want to talk about that controversy. But before we get to that, let's take one more quick break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Okay, Mango, so let's get to the controversial and talk about why a growing number of parents are banning Shel Silverstein from their children's bookshelves. I mean, honestly, is it still just the idea that his books promote bad behavior, or is there more to it than this? Well, I, I do think that's part of it. I, I think some parents still have this old-school approach to children's lit, where they, uh, they expect it to be completely edifying or you know, not really have those sharp edges. And of course, they're going to have this negative reaction to an author who has no bones about presenting these grown-up ideas or 
all these problems in a ways that are, I guess, approachable to kids. And then there are the folks who take offense to specific poems from A Light in the Attic or Where the Sidewalk Ends, like, you know, that baby-eating one you read earlier. But for the most part, people's biggest beef with Silverstein is usually the message or even the potential lack of one in The Giving Tree. All right, well, on the off chance that there's somebody listening that isn't familiar with this story, I feel like we should give a quick rundown of what happened. So it's basically the story of a little boy who grows up with this sentient tree for a companion. And at different stages in the boy's life, the tree gives him whatever he needs to have this safer, easier life, you know, whether that's leaves or branches or apples, pretty much all the things a tree could realistically provide to someone. And the whole time, the tree is personified as sort of a weary, kind of like a put-upon woman. And I say woman because it's referred to with female pronouns. That's right. And she's constantly nurturing him with little concern for her own happiness or well-being. She keeps giving, the boy keeps taking, and, you know, his lot improves as a result of all these interactions, but the trees really doesn't. So in the end, there's nothing left of the giving tree but this stump, and, you know, even then, it's offered up to the boy, who's now an old man at this point, as a place to sit and rest. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a feel-good story all around. No kidding. uh, I mean, that description alone probably says a lot about why some people are so put off by this book. And at a glance, you might think it's a simple story of unconditional love, which could easily make the tree an allegory for lots of things. Uh, It could be like friendship or marriage, parenthood, God, you know, whatever. But then you remember that, like, love is meant to go both ways. You know, ideally, it's never supposed to be one party always taking and the other always giving. I mean, even for parents where so much of your time and energy are devoted to your kids, it's not like we get nothing in return for all that effort. Yeah, I was actually reading this cracked article that claimed the story's message was one of two things. So the first one they said that it might be is your parents exist only to serve you and then die. So that's the first. <laughs> and then or, or if the tree doesn't symbolize the parent, then the message amounts to eventually something will come along that bleeds you dry and that's just how it is. And of course, neither of those are very good messages for children <laughs> or for adults, for that matter. No, definitely not. And and given all that, it, it's easy to see why people might worry that the book more or less glorifies an abusive relationship. But I, I think the mistake is to assume that Silverstein overlooked that reading or that he might have intended it as a way to mislead kids into either accepting or, I guess, inflicting that kind of one-sided relationship. So, I mean, and think about it. Do you think Silverstein intended the story to be upsetting on some level, like kind of a cautionary tale or something? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's highly possible. But whatever the case, I, I don't think he meant it as this straightforward story about selflessness or that we're meant to approve of the boy's actions or feel happy that the tree is reduced to a stump by the end of the book. I mean, people have always grasped that there's something off about this story. I mean, Just think about that publisher whose first reaction was that the tree was not behaving in a healthy way or, heck, I mean, look at Bart Simpson. You you know how there's that running gag on the show where he has to write something repeatedly on the chalkboard as like punishment? Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in one episode he writes, the giving tree is not a chump. So (laughs) even someone as disinterested as, you know, Bart Simpson is in reading knew something weird was going on there. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because we've mostly been talking about parents' reactions to the book. And in a lot of cases, there are people who've returned to the book after reading it as kids themselves. And suddenly they're finding it maybe wasn't this clear-cut story of sacrifice that they remember from childhood. So, for instance, I I read this article on the Huffington Post about a woman who reread the story as a parent. 
And it just launched her into this existential crisis. And she was asking, you know, am I the tree? Am I the boy? I don't know. And she just <laughs> panicked about this. But, you know, here's the thing I found remarkable, you know, that, that while the book left this mother with a million heady questions about herself and the way of the world and our responsibility to one another and, you know, all these different things – her children seem to grasp the story's lessons just instinctually. So as she writes about it, she says, They knew it was wrong to keep asking without offering in return. They thought the boy was selfish. They thought he was careless. They were heartbroken over lost things. The tree's sad remains. Maybe they cried for the impossible, far-off promise that endings were inevitable. That in the end, all we're reduced to or judged by are the people we love and the people who loved us. Now, I don't get it, but even though they can't put it into words, my children do. Hmm. I mean, that's really beautiful. And it, it does say so much about the innocence of kids that a story that seems so morally ambiguous to adults, like, would just make perfect sense to them. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's also important that these kids not only recognize that the story has this sad ending, but, you know, they accepted that and still enjoyed the story regardless. Like, that's just such a nice piece of validation for Silverstein. And, and he actually went on record with the New York Times about how much he disliked happy endings in these children's stories. He told the reporter that happy endings, quote, create an alienation. The child asks, why I don't have this happiness thing you're telling me about? And comes to think when his joy stops that he has failed, that it won't come back. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it goes back to that revolutionary idea of his about being honest with children. I, I mean, of, of course, our gut reaction is to try and spare our kids the pain of sad, unhappy endings whenever possible. But in practice, that just leaves them with this incomplete view of the world, which is way worse than a few tears in the long run. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds right to me. But, you know, let's give Shell himself the last word on the matter. So his family released a posthumous collection of, of some of his unpublished poems back in 2011. And here's one poem in particular that really says it all. It's called Happy Ending. And it goes, there are no happy endings. Endings are the saddest part. So give me a happy middle and a very happy start. I love that. But what do you say we put Shel Silverstein's theory to the test and try to close the show with the happiest fact off we can muster? All right, I'm game for that. I mean, it might not be a happy ending, but but it has worked for us so far. <laughs> so one of his most famous poetry collections and one of my favorites of his work, A Light in the Attic, was actually one of the 100 most challenged materials in the 90s, according to the American Library Association. And it's funny because some critics felt that in the book, he, quote, glorified Satan, suicide, cannibalism, and also encouraged children to be disobedient. Man, he really accomplished a lot in one book. Uh -huh. That's impressive. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting that one of his cartoons has supposedly been used in these psychological tests, you know, to test how optimistic someone is. That's a cartoon you may have seen it before, but it's the cover of a collection of his comments that he created over the years, and, and these were mostly for Playboy. Now, in the comic, you see two prisoners shackled to the wall, and they're not doing well, and it doesn't look like there's any hope of them getting out. And there's this incredibly high ceiling where you see the only window to the outside world, but even that is heavily barred. But the only words you see are from one prisoner looking at the other and saying, now here's my plan. 
So anyway, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the book was actually called that. Now here's my plan, a book of futilities. And when Silverstein was asked about how so many people have used the cartoon to interpret different things, he said, you do something, you make it simple, and everybody else starts loading it up with deep meanings, which is okay by me if they want to do that. Everybody loves Rorschach tests. <laughs> well, Shell did not love to be pinned down. He, he never owned a car. And, and for many years, one of the main homes he lived in was a houseboat. And speaking in an interview with Publishers Weekly, he said, quote, I'm free to leave, go wherever I please, do whatever I want. I believe everyone should live like that. Don't be dependent on anyone else, man, woman, child, or dog. I want to go everywhere, look at and listen to everything. You can go crazy with some of the wonderful stuff there is in life. Hmm. All right, well, Shell never read reviews about his books or any of his other works, and here's what he had to say about that. Quote, I think if you're a creative person, you should just go about your business, do your work, and not care how it's received. I never read reviews because if you believe the good ones, you have to believe the bad ones too. Not that I don't care about success. I do, but only because it lets me do what I want. So I think it's fun that over the years we've used a Shel Silverstein poem to describe our philosophy on making fun things, like whether that was mental floss or board games or books or whatever, and it's a poem called Put Something In. It goes, draw a crazy picture, write a nutty poem, sing a mumble-gumble song, whistle through your comb, do a loony-goony dance across the kitchen floor, put something silly in the world that ain't been there before. You beat me to it, Mango. I was actually <laughs> going to share that poem. So I, I've got to give you today's Fact Off Trophy because that's one of my favorites of his. Oh, thank you so much, Will. And and I do want to say today's show and, and my part in particular was recorded at Mouth Media Network Studio in New York City, which is powered by Sennheiser. You can learn more about Mouth Media at mouthmedianetwork.com. So listeners, I'm sure we've forgotten some great facts about Shel Silverstein, and we would love to hear those from you. You can always email us part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com or call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-866-PT-GENIUS or you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? 
M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, Peanut Butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of Peanut Butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.